0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with WFIU, WTIU Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. Americans are, having, uh, are not having as many kids as they used to, and that trend shows no signs of slowing down. In 2017, Americans gave birth to the lowest number of children in 30 years, while the estimated number of, of children the average American woman is expected to have during her lifetime is at its lowest since the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention began recording birth data at the start of the 20th century. While well, the exact reason for these decreases are not known, um, whatever the cause, American society could face great pressures in the future as a relatively small number of, or small younger population works to support a larger population of older Americans. We have three guests in the studio to discuss this issue with us, and of course, we'll be taking your calls. In the studio is Kristen Adams, the president and CEO of the Indiana Family Health Council, former director of the Office of Public Health Policy and Performance Management at the Indiana State Department of Health. Also, Kira Allendorf, who's the associate an associate professor of sociology and international studies at Indiana University. And also with us is Justin Garcia, research director at the Kinsey Institute and associate professor of gender studies at Indiana University. If you want to join our conversation, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. News at org is where you can send questions and also you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So after that long introduction, thank you all for being here. It's great great to have you in the studio. So I set up what the issue is we're going to talk about, and I guess I just want to get your general feedback to that first. So uh,
1: Justin, let's let's start with you. I mean, is this a, is this a big problem that we're facing? Uh, sure. So uh, thanks for having us all on. And I think my colleagues can probably speak to the uh, fertility and reproduction questions, but Uh, There are questions about what we call sub-replacement fertility, is are we seeing in the United States that there aren't enough uh, people being born? Now for me, I study romantic and sexual relationships and uh, human sexuality, so the question for me is uh, are people making (laughs) enough um, uh, babies, (laughs) as it were, I guess I won't use too technical language. so, and it turns out there are a lot of questions about that. Many people saw the recent uh, cover story of The Atlantic, the December issue by Kate Julian, uh, who raised the question, is America in a sex recession? And there's some compelling evidence that something's going on, To, But I don't know that all of these issues are necessarily problematic. So for instance, one of the areas that we've seen declining fertility and I'm in Kira's area, but here, uh, is on teen pregnancy. And uh, so, so there are certain categories that maybe are, are positive signs that we're seeing these decreases. I think uh, teen pregnancy rates have fallen uh, well over 10% in the last, I think, 16 years in the CDC data. I'm looking at Kira to make sure I get these numbers right. She's the the, the demographer. Um, So uh, there's also data showing that the number of uh, high school students who have had sexual intercourse in the last year has declined in the last few years. So some of those patterns might be ones that people are happy to see, but the, the bigger picture, the sort of bigger ecosystem of America We are seeing these declining rates of reproduction, and they could be tied to declining rates of sexual behavior, and we can talk more about that over the next hour. It's a pretty complicated story, but I don't want to take all the time. Sure. Kira?
2: Uh, sure. I'll start with putting uh, some demographic perspective on this. As you led with our uh, fertility rates have declined over the past 10 years. Uh, in 2007, we were at a high of 2.1 children per woman. Uh, but this is not unprecedented. We were at similar and even lower rates in 19 in the 1970s with the oil recession. Uh, if you use a, uh, the lowest 2017, as you started with the intro, is according to the general fertility rate, which is an important but not ideal measure of fertility, a uh, slightly better measure the total fertility rate which adjusts for the age structure of population was actually at a low in 1976 Uh, but the important takeaway here is that we're not this is not unprecedented we experienced this before Uh, in terms of this um, being a problem, uh, 1.8 as we are uh, today is not really not that low when you put it in international perspective. Our neighbor to the north Canada is at 1.5, Europe 1.6, South Korea at 1.1. So the United States when put in perspective is actually infamous for having high fertility uh, compared to other similar countries. Uh, looking forward, uh, this is below what we call the replacement level of fertility which would be at about 2.1 children per woman. when you have low mortality like we do. But this has to be in place for a very long time in order for those effects to take place. And a lot of what we see going on in the United States are what we call tempo or timing effects when women are merely shifting when they have children rather than reducing the actual total quantity of children that they have at the end of their lives. Uh, So we have a long... uh, trend of delaying having births at older times. Uh, Justin's comment pointed to that. So the issue is to what extent will women recoup uh, fertility later and this is just an artificial timing effect. It's also important to point out there's two ways to add people to the population. One is births, fertility, uh, but the other is migration. And for the United States for several decades and looking into the future, uh, the main factor in our population size is migration. And we are projected to grow by 2060. Uh, we should have about uh, nearly a hundred million more people than we have now. Uh, Fertility of the native-born population keeps us almost the same size, but it's the migration of uh, migrants will will cause us to grow. And I should point out that that also is usually helpful in terms of the aging of the population. Those migrants are working age, which helps us with dependency problems. Um, Whereas uh, Due to our own low fertility, we have an aging population with more and more old
0: people. Right. Okay. Kristen.
3: Sure. Um, The other thing I think we can think about is contraceptive methods have certainly um, become more prevalent and more affordable as it's also been tied in with the Affordable Care Act. So women have access to contraceptive coverage at no cost for them. We also have better methods that now have a five- and six-year um, capacity instead of taking a pill every day, which then creates um, maybe an unintended or unexpected. So women are actually able to plan their pregnancies, um, and their timing and their spacing. So I think that's also leads into the age factor of mm-hmm. teens not reproducing mm-hmm. at the highest rate, and and our 20 and 30 year olds waiting until after 30 to to have children. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, just to piggyback on that in the terms of this, you know, this trend in the last 10 years, uh, that's absolutely the case that really this um, is a product of two factors. One is the recession, and this is common in, in high-income countries that fertility goes down, usually temporarily during a recession, and then it comes back up afterwards. And sort of the mystery was it, it looks like you know, we're not going up uh, after the recession ended. Uh, but what happened is at the same time we had a recession is something else happened, which is the Affordable Care Act. Uh, which in 2010, right, made it so that women could get Uh, contraception free of charge in most cases. So we see a huge increase in uptake of contraception, and in particular, long-acting methods, primarily the IUD, Mm -hmm. which is much more effective. So this quadrupled uh, since 2008, the use of the IUD. So this is really a good thing in that uh, women who don't want to have births are reducing unintended births. So um, this is positive that women and, and their partners are better able to achieve their fertility goals.
0: Can I follow up on that really quickly? So, um, with the recession ending, it seems like we've talked a lot in the last decade about how, yeah, the recession ended, but wages still didn't go up very much. Is that could that be part of it too? The, because. For the, for the family, they weren't seeing those. Yes, for those and, who are
2: still continuing to uh, experience um, you know, low income, unemployment. Also, uncertainty is an issue with fertility as well, uh, that for many, if they're not, sh- you know, maybe I have a job now, but maybe I won't in a year, so now is not a good time to have a child. Let's mm-hmm. wait a few years.
1: And I, I think in some ways, that speaks to um, s- some larger patterns of, so, uh, Kira mentioned earlier the sort of pushing back of sort of when people are starting families and the age at first birth. And that's been consistently pushing back. It's, I think it's uh, what we call a secular trend. It's just been getting pushed back and back further. So people are having their, we're seeing pubertal ages at even lower ages, but we're seeing age at first birth and age at first marriage at later ages in the United States. So uh, early on, researchers started to debate, well, maybe that's partly what's going on. Are people just delaying reproduction so much that then the window is less, so they're having less kids? And that's one possibility. And the other is that that pattern, that delaying of reproduction, is symptomatic of something else, like economic issues. So people are spending longer time in uh, school and education. They're trying to put some money away. They're trying to afford their first home. So that there are these larger cultural economic factors that might also be shaping reproductive patterns uh, across the life course.
4: Well, and just the effect that the economy is having on our relationships, too, if, mm-hmm. if you think about it, it seems like that would have to figure into this as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Finding a partner is one of the major reasons that we see um,
2: women delaying fertility. Uh, If you look at the ideal family size, the number of children, but women and men want, it's been remarkably stable at two children for decades in the United States. So the issue is not that people want fewer children, it's uh, whether they achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. Is
4: this inherently a a bad thing, Kristen, that that we're not at this level of maintaining the existing population. Is that something that we need to do?
3: I, I think there's it, it could be seen on both sides uh, of the story. I don't think it's um, good or bad. I, I think we've got to weigh the consequences uh, of the data. And why I say this is we think about this from an environmental standpoint, less population puts uh, less stress on the resources. At the end of the day though, we do have an economy that is really built on that next generation of of sustaining the older population. So when you go back to um, the 1800s where we had multiple children because we had farm lives um, and it was really raising that village together And so now we look at that and say, we we don't need the village as much because we've got an entire community. But fewer people to support where we currently are may not be sustainable. Think about the unemployment rate being really low right now. We don't have enough workers to keep the jobs. Um, So what's that gonna do for our economy on the other side of this? And things like social security. Absolutely. Social Security, our tax base, is that who, who is going to take care of the baby boomers and who's going to take care of our generation um, if if there's not that sustainable tax base.
0: If you want to join our conversation today, the numbers are 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also uh, send us uh, a question at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition are we seeing things i mean we're talking about national statistics here uh, are we seeing things at various places in the country like different states or is it just an across the board uh, is everything the same depending on you know urban versus rural and east coast versus west coast versus midwest and so
2: these trends are remarkably uh, consistent across the u.s in terms of the decline and you know fluctuation in recent decades and and delaying the timing of childbirth but we do see um, variation also by state and by rural urban residents Uh, so fertility is generally higher in rural and smaller counties lower in larger more metro counties we also see strong well, not gigantic, but some interesting variation by state. So the national average, our total fertility rate is 1.77 right now. Indiana is just slightly higher at 1.87, as you noticed in the intro. Uh, in South Dakota and Utah are at 2.1, 2.2. And then the lowest state is um, Massachusetts at 1.5, uh, which is more in keeping with sort of your European countries and Canada. Um, Fun fact: uh, DC is actually the lowest at 1.4. So we see some variation, but not um, not a huge amount there.
0: We could analyze that, but that <laughs> might take the rest of the program. <laughs> I'm
4: wondering just the uh, like if you've measured at all the effect of religion and how. That could be affecting.
2: It's not a very important factor. We do see that women who uh, religion is very important to them as measured, for example, by how regularly they attend religious services. Those women tend to have higher fertility. Uh, But we don't see um, significant or substantial differences by religious affiliation. So, for example, lots of people think Catholics have more children than, say, Protestants. But that's really not the case in, in recent decades.
0: Well, I want to ask Kristen about your organization, Indiana Family Health Council, and how does this uh, issue relate to what you do on a daily basis?
3: Sure. So the uh, Indiana Family Health Council um, is brings in the Title X family planning dollars for the state of Indiana. So these are federal resources um, that come in. And what we do is we disperse the funds throughout the state for family planning clinics, and those are usually targeted to individuals who are below 100 percent federal poverty level or in communities that just have no other health care services so um, we do fund a clinic in Bloomington, um, the Futures Family Planning Clinic. Um, and so what this does is it allows women to have access to any type of contraceptive coverage they would like. Um, if they are below 100% federal poverty level, they pay nothing. And anything above 100% poverty level um, goes on a sliding fee scale. So we are really in high-risk communities, again, either based on um economics or provider services or that we have a high teen birth rate or high STD rate. So we provide STD testing, pap smears, um, breast exams uh, and contraceptive coverage and and other health care services.
0: How stable has your federal funding been?
3: The federal funding has been stable. It's been flat funded for about um, eight years, which makes it hard because health care costs go up. Um, But at the end of the day, we've been able to sustain um, the number of clinics we've had. Um, We provide funding to a variety of folks, so we just try to make it work. We've been very fortunate to have HIP 2.0 for the state um, and allow that expansion to to cover more people. Mm
4: -hmm. Justin, I'm curious with your research, when you look at um, just couples and how their sexual relationships might be changing, how all of that
1: factors in? Can you talk
4: a little bit about that?
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think um, to Kristen's comment, it makes me think um, what we're talking about this hour about uh, fertility patterns, that exactly, there's so much, there's economic issues, there's sexual issues, there's relationship issues, there's larger demographic patterns. So uh, on the uh, sexual and couples side, uh, we see some patterns that seem to be weighing in here. One is that uh, people are, we're seeing more demographically in the United States are these prolonged periods of courtship. So uh, people are taking longer to get in established relationships, the context within which we often see reproduction, if if that is the way that we're seeing population replacement, to to Kira's point earlier. Um, So we're seeing... uh, People, for instance, are hanging out for six months and then dating for six months and then maybe using a title and then a boyfriend-girlfriend or boyfriend-boyfriend-girlfriend-girlfriend for a few years and engaged for a few years. So those patterns of getting to know someone a few decades ago, uh, intimate relationships in some ways, my colleague, Helen Fisher and I just wrote on this, um, intimate relationships in some ways started with marriage. You didn't date very long and you got married and then the relationship took off. For this generation, and I don't mean just millennials or Gen Xers, I mean sort of more globally what we're seeing in the United States is a marriage is the finale of a relationship. People are dating and courting for months and years so what that means is that's delaying reproduction. You are meeting people with whom, perhaps in past decades, you would have reproduced within a relatively short period of time. Some of the cross-cultural data suggest one to three years um, uh, after establishing in a relationship that we're seeing that that's being pushed back into years into. A couple, so we're seeing somewhat older parents. Uh, We're seeing uh, greater interbirth intervals between periods between kids. Uh, So some of those patterns uh, we're seeing, and then there's the bigger question that you started with: is what about sexual behavior and sexuality? And that seems to be playing a factor too, but. It's a little bit complicated. The reason I'm laughing is because uh, sex researchers and people who study relationships and sexuality are somewhat debating what's really going on. There does to be some evidence that there might be decreases in sexual frequencies. So uh, Gene Twenge's study that uh, received a lot of attention showed in the General Social Survey, if I get the numbers right, there was a drop in the number of coital events in one year from 62 times a year to 54 times a year. So that's people are having, on average eight less intercourse events in a year. Um, So there's a big question of, oh, my gosh, does that mean, you know, what's happening? Um, And there's all sorts of debates about what might be happening and uh, the robustness of that effect. It was a very good study, but it needs to be replicated. And there's a lot of methodological questions. On the one hand, it's the gold standard of asking the same question every year. But on the other hand, perhaps, the way people are even defining what it means to have sex has changed. We know, for instance, that uh, if you ask a lesbian couple about their sexual activity, if you just said that you have sex, and you ask a heterosexual couple, the actual behaviors that they engage in uh, are different. The way they're using that word, had sex, is different. So as sex researchers, we use more specific language, often behaviorally focused. So to your core question, I don't know if I fully answered it, what's going on, there's big debates about what's going on. Is there this recession? And if there is, is it a statistically meaningful one that could end up having effects on uh, fertility or effects on relationships or stability of couples? Yeah,
0: go ahead.
2: I just wanted to follow up on Justin's earlier part there, talking about the process of courtship and marriage and how that's delaying. Uh, and that is absolutely true. We, we have what demographers call the retreat of marriage, where less people are marrying at all and those who are are more later. But it's also important to point out that there's um, really vast differences in the United States, uh, and largely this plays out by class, that uh, – higher socioeconomic standards usually measured as those who have a bachelor's degree or more have very different behaviors than those who have less than a bachelor's degree. And it's important to remember that uh, sort of the ideal is still for fertility to play place in marriage for many, but that this ideal is often not achieved. About 40% of fertility in the United States is non-marital. So so for the more advantaged, those mm -hmm. with a BA, yes, they they tend to wait for that perfect time when they're married, their job is stable, and everything is in place, and that's when they uh, choose to have a child or a second child. Um, But for those with less than a BA, they don't have excellent partnership prospects. They may never marry. If they do, they're likely to divorce. Uh, they don't have excellent employment and career aspirations that are, you know, competing with the benefits of having a child. Uh, so they may have a child outside of marriage, and many of them do. Uh, so obviously, you have to have sex unless you're using in vitro fertilization. So even if you're not married, that's that's part of the picture. Uh, but it's important to realize that a substantial amount of American fertility is outside marriage. And, and even among the married, um, many of those births are unintended.
4: Uh, but hasn't that really dropped? That's one of the things, though, with the Affordable Care Act and more birth That has
2: dropped, but it's still high. So uh, the most recent data I've seen was for uh, 2010 to 2013, and it was a third of births uh, were unintended still at that time.
1: Yeah, and I think um, uh, I love uh, Kira's point because it reminds us to think about these different walks of life in America across class, across economics, across racial and ethnic categories. Um, but I think, and I think that pro- my sense of the of the data is that's what tells us a little bit about why we're seeing patterns that aren't, huge shifts but we are seeing shifts for those very reasons but still we have the majority the majority of reproductions are occurring in these long-term relationships i think it's close to 60% are happening in marital arrangements so that is still the predominant pattern of america americans are deeply committed to marriage it's and it's actually a pattern that's quite consistent cross-culturally and has been consistent, I put my biologist hat on for close to 4 million years, of uh, reproductions happening in those long-term bonds. But your point is such an important one, um, and I think it's similar to issues that Kristen uh, deals with in her, in her uh, organization, is that we see that people have very different walks of life, and these things shake out quite differently. All right. I'm gonna,
0: we've got a caller that's waiting, but I'm going to ask her to be patient for a minute because we're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We will be right back.
5: From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, online at smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at wfiu news. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Sarah Whitmire. We're talking today about fertility rates going down across the United States. Is that you know good, bad? What What are the reasons for it? If you want to join us on the program, you can do so by calling 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can go to news at indianapublicmedia.org or at Noon Edition, if you want to follow us on Twitter. You will find that we have three guests with us in the studio, Justin Garcia, Research Director at the Kinsey Institute and Associate Professor of Gender Studies at Indiana University. Kira Allendorf, uh, Associate Professor of Sociology and International Studies at IU. And Kristen Adams, President and CEO of the Indiana Family Health Council and former Director of the Office of Public Health Policy and Performance Management the Indiana State Department of Health. We have a caller who's been very patient with us. Let's go to the phones. Liren, I think you're on. Hello.
6: Hi. Hi, go, go right ahead. So my, I'm a woman in my earlier 30s, and I have a lot of friends who are women in their earlier 30s. I've been married eight years. I've got a really, I I figure I'm one of the lucky ones with a really stable job. And my husband and I both really want to be able to start a family. We've been talking about it for maybe half of our marriage. Here's the problem, though. Like, all of my friends have been seeing this in the news that, you know, birth rates are falling. And we find it hilarious that the experts don't know why, because to us, it's, it's Really simple. We have so much debt right now. Like, we wanna have a baby, but I've got student loan payments. My husband has student loan payments. We can't even apply for a mortgage. We can't we can't get a mortgage, so we can't get a house. So why would we be able to have a kid? You know, and I, I have really good health insurance through my job, luckily, You <laughs> a knock on wood on that one. But we're just now, and a year from now, we're going to make our final payments on my student loans. And we're going to get, re- we've got all of our medical debt almost paid off at this point. And for the first time in our lives, again, we've been married eight years, we're looking at being debt-free, but we're still going to be, you know, 35, 36, and we are just, we want to take a breather, you know, as much <laughs> as I'd love to have a baby. I really want to, we've got our names picked out, we know which room in the house, our our current rented apartment would be the nursery, but we just, we want a breather, we want a break. You know, we want to live the life that people say adults should be able to live that we haven't been able to yet, even though we both have college degrees. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so from all of my 30 something year old friends, that's all of our reasons right there, and and not even to bring into the reasons like do I want my child to be around when the Earth starts flooding and everything? <laughs> and Florida no longer exists. That's a separate reason right there. But for us mainly, it's it's just the incredible debt load and the absolute. We haven't been adults yet. You know how can we be parents until we've had a year or so of being adults?
0: All right, that's a, a great point, and our I think our panelists want to react a little bit. So. Kristen?
3: I, I think she's absolutely <laughs> right. I think we we talk about the cost of daycare. It, it is not cheap to have a baby. And it's, a good chunk of those expenses happen in that first five years of life um, before we can get them into a kindergarten setting. And that doesn't think that, oh, I want to send my kid to private school or I want to send them wherever. It's just getting through daycare. And then we think about women who don't have um, paid maternity leave or who don't have family leave to have the baby. So they're six weeks, twelve weeks without income. Um, and then is the retribution once you have the baby? You know, will, will you look be looked upon by your employment as this is not a good thing? So I, I think you are absolutely valid in what also we hear is is debt. And and taking on any more debt is stressful, which also then I think leads to other issues in our personal relationships.
0: I think we've had uh, shows on daycare before, and, and the the statistic that just I still it shocked me, and it still shocks me is that it basically costs enough uh, the same amount for four years of daycare as four years of college. So it's wow. It's a lot of money.
4: Yeah, I I was glad she called in. I also have a lot of thirty-something friends who say exactly the same thing. Just how do you afford to do it? It doesn't seem like, um, you know, when we look at the cost of college tuition, the cost of daycare, none of it is actually keeping up with wages. And so, how do you how do you do it?
0: Uh, I'm I'm gonna go like way off kind of. Oh, go ahead. you want to follow up?
2: I just wanted a quick follow up in okay. addition to the great example of how, you know, debt and other economic concerns are important. Uh, this also really illustrates an important trend of how delaying leads to foregoing fertility, right? Your mid-30s is when women's fecundity, fecundity, their biological ability to have children, really starts to decline. And a lot of American women aren't aware that it happens at that point. And uh, like the caller, you know, they, they would like to spend a little more time or maybe you know, getting to know their partner or they don't have the exact economic circumstances in line. But if they wait uh, two years from 35 to 37, you can really substantially reduce your your probability of having a child, uh, so fertility for gone, for delayed can be fertility for gone, and sometimes you have to do it at suboptimal times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, um, so so humans are, cross taxonomically what we call a subfecund species compared to many other mammals, and that uh, uh, to Kira's point, what, what we'll see is. Um, People often think that, okay, I'm ready to have a baby, so we're going to try, and we'll be pregnant in two weeks. And what we actually see is that many, uh, some of the data that gets thrown around often is that 50% of couples are trying for at least six months. Now, that number is probably a bit skewed by those that are reporting in clinics, but uh, the pattern nonetheless tells us that many people try for six months, a year, over a year. And the longer you wait, that could become more difficult. So, if you're in your mid 30s and you decide that you want to enjoy life for a few years, and you're finally debt free, and then you s- decide to start trying, and that could take a year, and then pregnancy can take it's close to 10 months. We often say nine months, but it's close to 10 months. Um, and uh, then, if you wanted to have a second child, the interbirth intervals. So, uh, these are these are pretty long long processes uh, in terms of time and investment to reach reproductive goals if we have them. <laughs> I want
0: to ask Kristen and this maybe get, gets politics a little bit involved in this conversation but you know from your time you know and being involved with public health policy I mean are there policies that could be uh, tweaked or thrown out or changed that would help alleviate some of these costs some of these problems that younger parents that, or parents are, are having until they get to be in their 30s being able to say yeah okay I'm comfortable now I can we can have a child
3: absolutely um, i i think there's a great debate going on at the state house right now about paid paid family leave um, but i also think about supportive work environments so in other words um, women who do choose to get pregnant and and are are they safe where they work so are they being penalized because they can't lift the 75 pound box anymore when they're eight and a half months pregnant um, you know, do they have a lactation room? So in other words, you can pump during lunch hour or pump during a break. And so that's actually a win-win for mom and baby. Um, you know and formula is expensive. So breast milk is best for, for many infants um, in, in 99% of the cases. So it's these environmental changes that we think about, but we also have to start thinking about um, pre-K in terms of getting kids into school sooner, um, instead of waiting till kindergarten or first grade, so having that reduced option of paying for childcare is is also another opportunity. I was doing some reading
4: before um, today and. I was looking at the incentives some of some countries offer you're nodding. I was Russia apparently offered refrigerators and why do these incent? I mean, the refrigerator I think is kinda obvious why that didn't work probably, but why is it that in so many cases incentives don't work? Maybe can can you speak to that, Kira? Sure. Well in many cases if you think
2: about the size of the incentive relative to the opportunity cost and just direct costs of having a child, they're really Quite different, right? So, just to take the Russian example, a fridge is not going to offset what you have to do to have a child, you know, for the next 20 years. Um, so, it's it's not a large enough incentive. Um, but we do see that um, in Europe for example, Northern Europe has higher fertility than Southern Europe and, and it's believed the reason is, as Christian's point um, makes, is that there's much more uh, family friendly policies and workplaces where women are better able uh, to combine work and family. Southern Europe that's really not possible and that's where we see the very low fertility rates 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 where Northern Europe is more up around you know, 1.8. Uh, it's important to note though that the U.S. is, is higher than that so we probably would you know if we could have you know uh, daycare uh, freely available or at least lower cost across the country if people could better combine work and family we might see some boosts uh, but we are already relatively high given our um, income level and fertility preferences.
0: Our phone numbers if you want to join our conversation we hope that you do 812 855 one uh, yeah zero eight one one in Bloomington one e seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area at noon edition if you want to follow us on Twitter and news at Indiana public media org if you want to send us a question uh, and you don't want to go on the air now I have to say you know we're talking a, a lot about uh, statistics and public policy it's not a very romantic program for the day after <laughs> <laughs> after Valentine's Day what um, And I kind of want to go back to the idea that, you know, in my time as a newspaper editor, I had people would write me letters to the editor saying, you know, one of the things we have to do to save the earth is to stop having so many children. You know, so, you know, is is there some sort of a political aspect to this? And I think, you know, our caller talked about, do I want to bring a kid into the world the way things are going now, and then, uh, yeah, I guess I'll stop the question there because there are a couple parts already. So, Kira, you're...
2: you're Uh, Sure, I'll I'll start off here. Again, I want to emphasize there's there's no shortage of people in the world, and in fact, on a global scale, we've been, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we were very concerned about overpopulation. Uh, globally the total fertility rate has come down, you know, it's 2.4 worldwide now, so uh, really fertility has slowed substantially and we're not as worried about overpopulation, although we still will have certainly some population growth. But in the United States specifically, as I noted, even if we had a much lower fertility, this is not a problem in terms of our population. Because we are a country of migration, both historically and and will be into the future. So there's no shortage of people. Uh, There's large numbers of people who want to come to the United States. And we're really not in danger of declining uh, our population size. Other countries like Japan, uh, South Korea, they have uh, some concerns, but the United States, we really shouldn't be worried. And uh, another uh, demographer likes to say, you know, low fertility is the kind of problem we like to have. It, it certainly has some downsides, but in the lower and the longer term, you know, you can't grow uh, forever. There's a, a you know only a certain capacity to the earth. So certainly, at some point, we have to slow down it, and we are we are at that point globally. Mm-hmm.
1: And that speaks to, I, I think, larger biological principles of any species that we see. Uh, humans are not, uh, we're not a contained um, species. Populations, uh, people intermarry, they inter-reproduce, uh, they are individual populations. And we, we talk about fertility rates at the level of the nation, but people are migrating across nations, they're marrying, they're having kids, they're uh, reproducing, whether on purpose or not. Uh, so it, that's it sets it apart as uh, the relationship between a species and the environment to, yes, okay, humans are having an impact on the environment. That's, that science is quite clear. Um, but uh, how will weather that storm, uh, pun intended, I guess, um, is uh, a little bit to be determined. And there is a question of how big the population can get, how much we're contributing to uh, environmental damage. Um, are we? Uh, how, how many resources we're taking you know, that are not renewable. And But as species populations, any populations, they ebb and flow uh, with respect to the environment. And actually, you should expect, you predictably expect an organism to uh, facultatively or, or respond to those changes in environment, that you have periods that there's low reproduction, you have periods that there's high reproduction, um, you have periods that there's more or less migration out of particular areas. So I think one of the complex features of humans is that we start to think of this at the level of nation, at these sort of political levels, these cultural levels, but at the same time, what we're seeing is a pattern that's as tried and true as the earth, right? That, that species do engage in these ups and downs of population patterns.
4: Mm-hmm. So this is just a normal evolutionary process,
1: in your I think I mean I think unless we have population wipeout, but um, uh, which hopefully doesn't happen. But we've got things to do. Um, but uh, uh, yes, we see ebbs and flows in population size in most species, and you should expect them to re- to respond to things like how big is the population? To you know, is it has it gotten big enough? Okay, then it comes down for a bit. How are there enough resources? Um, you know, uh, most mammals. Let's say. That engage, they put a lot of effort and time into reproduction and a lot of energy. They don't have an unlimited number of offspring because at some point it's uh, it's bad for them. They keep, you don't want to keep investing. Uh, when they might actually not have a chance to be viable and to survive. And at worst, then the offspring are competing against each other. So evolutionarily, you do expect at some point you say, I'm not going to have 100 kids where they're all competing with each other. I'm going to have two or three or five that I really invest in. Uh, I'm thinking if I was a monkey, not a human, (laughs) having a 100 babies. I'm actually thinking of bush babies. Um, And so that you would have a certain number and then actually the sex ratios might vary depending on which is the dispersing sex, which stays in the natal home, which goes out because Perhaps there's not enough resources here. So there's a, uh, quite a complex evolutionary biology exactly about these reproductive patterns and nest, what we call nest size or, or, or number of offspring and the sex ratio of those offspring. Uh, and it responds to environments. And we are certainly in a complex environmental time.
2: I wanted to add to that. Um, historically, sort of pre 1800, we certainly see these ebbs and flows, and we, we do more recently with human populations. But it's also important to pop to note that uh, post 1800, the global population has undergone what's called the demographic transition, and and we're not mm-hmm. seeing an ebb and flow. So many of your listeners are probably remember. It seems like every other year, it's announced that we've reached you know another billion in population, and it seems like oh we're just going to grow forever. But really, this is a very um, specific historical time that in the early 1800s mortality started declining then later fertility and this caused a huge growth in the global population but now as fertility has come down as I said right now we're at uh, 2.4 globally Uh, the Population growth is going to level out uh, in the next few decades, and so we started off, you know, at a billion people in 1800, and we're going to end at probably 10 or 11 billion in 2100. But we are leveling off. So globally, we've seen a huge rise in global population, but mm-hmm. but we are leveling.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about um, uh, if you're familiar with any studies about you know decision making among couples, because it seems to me I, I, this is I'm taking a guess here, uh, I guess an educated guess, that we see a lot more kids in foster care, a lot more kids that uh, there seem to be more children to be adopted, either internationally or or nationally. Are are people making decisions that I'm, we're not going to have a child of our own, we're going to adopt? Is that something? Mm-hmm. Kristen, I guess I'm looking to you. Well,
3: you know, I think adoption is is still at the forefront, but many people say, first and foremost, I want to start my own family is usually the trends, and then it's usually because we've delayed our fertility, then adoption starts becoming more commonplace talking. Now, you know, the cause of right now why so many kids are in foster care, particularly in Indiana, is re- strongly related to the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, it's, we're seeing more and more kids just being raised by non-parental, um, custody arrangements grandparents are raising them foster care is raising them because we have drug addicted parents um, so i think that's you know a different scenario but um, you know i think international adoption and and, and local adoption is still um, is still an option for many people but it's not for everybody it doesn't become the way to go it becomes the secondary way to go
0: gotcha so not not really a factor in this just wanted yeah.
3: to say that
2: um, one thing that has increased in recent years, uh, both internationally and dev- is surrogacy. So that's something that we see if, if couples are not able to conceive on their own or are not able through in vitro fertilization. They, uh, so, for example, India um, in the past has been a, a popular place for surrogates uh, for couples from the
4: United States and, and Europe. Okay. Kira, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about migration because you, we keep talking about this as a as a global issue and not just something – in the United States, but I know, you know, obviously there's this huge debate right now about immigration, and um, in I think it was Hungary I was reading about was saying, we, we don't want immigration right. here. <laughs> These need to be babies that are born in Hungary. So I guess, historically, how much have we relied on migration to keep our population up, and do you see that changing?
2: Yeah, so the U.S. has you know, always had, um, it's fluctuated, but we've always had relatively, compared to other countries, high rates of migration. That's always been an important factor in our growth over time. Um, and demographically, migration and fertility, like I said, they're, they're both ways to add we- people. They're pretty demographically equivalent apart from the differences in age. But certainly there are a lot of um, tensions and concerns about mixing of people from different cultural backgrounds. So Hungary is a great example. Right now they are one of the Eastern European countries with very low fertility. They have plenty of migrants and people that want to move there, but they don't want those people because they're not Hungarian, right? Uh, so they're starting to implement these policies to try to raise the fertility rate. But as a purely demographic issue, Hungary doesn't have a problem. They could have plenty of people of working
4: age if they wanted them. If they were to allow Exactly. more exactly. Yeah. exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. We have just a few more minutes to go. If you want to give us a call, 812 855 811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon edition, or send in your question. News at Indiana Public Media org. So the the uh, Lowest number of children in 30 years. And when we were talking before, and I'm, I guess I'm just going to ask you, Kira, to, you were, talked about two different measurements that I, I used one in the opening. What,
2: yeah, so yeah, I'm happy to find yeah. a quick primer on yeah, fertility yeah, measurement. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so there's really three common measures. One is the crude birth rate, which that's just the number of births through per 1,000 people in the population. But as we know, many people are men or children who cannot have birth, right? So we like to have the people at risk of a birth in our denominator. So sort of the next measure is the general fertility rate, and that's the one that you spoke about. And the general fertility rate is the number of births per 1,000 women of reproductive age, right? So now we have in our denominator, people who can actually have babies, right? We've tossed out the men, we've tossed out the 10, well, five-year-olds and the, you know, 80-year-old women. Uh, but fertility varies very strongly by age, right? So we wanna take age into account as well. Uh, So the reason that we see the all-time low in the general fertility rate is really due to age structure differences. So we want to sort of take that out, that age part out, and the total fertility rate does that. It adjusts for the age structure of the population. So what the total fertility rate is, we can think that conceptually. If we had a cohort of women, and this is an imaginary cohort, but imagine a cohort of women who experienced the age-specific fertility rates of 2017 their entire lives. So they hit 15, they have the number of births that 15-year-olds had in 2017. Then when they're 20, they have the number of births that 20-year-olds were having in 2017. Right, so if that hypothetical cohort survives their entire lives, experiencing the age-specific fertility rates of 2017, the total fertility rate is the number of children they would have on average. So currently in 2017, that number is 1.77 for the United States.
4: Okay. Okay, uh, earlier I'd asked a question about religion and the how that might be contributing, and Brian Banger um, wrote and said that there were some interesting nuances when you broke it down for religion. So I'm just going to read a couple of these off. Um, it says Mormons have the most children at an average of 3.4. Yes, Mormons in the United States do have more, uh, more children, yes. And he did say Catholics are in the middle at 2.3. And this is a study that he linked to. And then agnostics, uh, the lowest at 1.3. So interesting when you when you break it down per religion, how it's a little bit different. I
0: mm-hmm. also want to go back to the the, the teenage um, pregnancy rate because I think that's that's been you know I grew up in small town Indiana and that's always been an issue that in in probably every state, but it certainly has been in in Indiana. So I guess I would ask uh, Justin from mm-hmm. from your perspective. I mean. What's causing this? Is it education that's creating the the change and reducing the number of teenage pregnancies?
1: Um, I, it's a very political question you're asked. Um, I, uh, because I think in our own state, um, the evidence would be that sex education is, is not really that great. It's not particularly um, inclusive. It doesn't particularly address issues of uh, sex. Um, so that can be... Uh, the best evidence that we have, at least the it is pretty rich literature on sex education. Um, abstinence education is not particularly effective. Um, it, it's not it's not really a political or a moral statement. It's just facts. The data suggests this doesn't really work. Um, so uh, it's an area that I think we have to do better as constituents of the state, um, and for people who are concerned about teenagers and children, we have to educate them better. Uh, so. Uh, I think that what we're seeing, though, in these patterns is we are seeing reduced, lower rates of uh, intercourse among teenagers. We're seeing uh, lower rates of pregnancy among teenagers. Part of that is availability of contraceptives. Um, and I, uh, Kristen knows more of the finer details of that about whether than I do about sort of the uh, how teenagers can sometimes access contraceptives and not necessarily always with parental consent, uh, which uh, makes it a little bit easier um, to prevent uh unwanted uh, or uh, unintended pregnancy. And uh, so that's part of the issue. Um, And I think there is better understanding at the national level, there's better understanding of teen pregnancy. So we understand it as, you know, those of us in the room or listeners or we understand it about we know there's a lot of consequences for teen pregnancy whether it's for your own kids or your nieces or your nephews or your so that has had an effect it's not the formal education because that's really not addressing the issue but more this informal education that we've we're hearing about it in the news and we're and it's online and it's and we recognize that there are pretty um, drastic consequences. Now, there still is a lot of teen pregnancy in America, and it, particularly across certain categories like financial class and uh, racial and ethnic groups. And so, it's not that it's not occurring, but it, it occurs at a pretty significant risk, both to the to the uh, physical health risk to both the mother and the child, but financial and logistics. Uh, so, I think it's a combination of effects is what the evidence would suggest. Yeah. We've got about a a minute and a half to go.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, nationally, um, what we have seen is that there had been an investment um, through the Obama administration. Really focusing on more comprehensive sex ed, and, yeah. and Indiana did receive some of those funds and in targeted communities, and we have seen progress in reducing those birth rates through educational programming. But the community was involved, so um, I could think of Clinton County, um, which is in northern Indiana, has had a great response to the community really coming together to address the issue. But at the same time, nationally, we would also say the access to contraceptives, Colorado has a great um, experience of being able to provide contraceptive to anyone who wants it, and they've actually seen their teen birth rate cut in half because of that program.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. I think we're out of time. I want to thank our guests today, Kristen Adams, Kira Allendorf, and Justin Garcia for producer Benta Boutier engineer Mike Pashkash and co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
5: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon
0: Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.